0: All right, you lot, it's bonus time. excellent
1: well. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. Whatever you do, don't fall.
0: Welcome yourselves back to a year in horror. As I mentioned on the last full-length episode of the regular podcast, buddy of the podcast, Chamarunu of the podcast, Mark Gnarly, he spoke to me and he did mention that he was a little tad sad that he didn't get a chance to chat about Let's Scare Jessica to death. Now, as it was one of the final movies that I watched for the 1971 episode, it wasn't amongst those that I offered to everyone to talk about. Now, I am not one to saddle up next to sadness. I am not one to meddle in a man's melancholia. So I pretty much forced Mark to do this bonus episode with me, as I wanted to know as much about this movie as I possibly could, because I can't stop thinking about it. It's been a month since I watched it, and I just want to know more. Thankfully, my request fell on positive ears. He agreed. I didn't make a fallout myself. So here we are. I would see this as like an extra feature and the main 1971 show as the main event. Uh, And you'll get the gist. You get the gist of what we're doing here. And just like always, I just want to quickly mention feel free to contact us here at the podcast. I'm available at a yearinhorror at gmail.com. You can help me with any thoughts that you like. I will get back to you. Well, I usually get back to people. I probably will get back to you. <laughs> Let's say that. You can follow me at WallerNotWeller on Letterboxd and WallerNotWeller on Instagram. Or you can hit me up on Not Pod on Twitter there you go that's where you can get me for now if you're walking your dog if you're sitting in a bath no matter where you are no matter how you are listening to this business enjoy it this is me and mark canali speaking about all things let's scare jessica to death
1: i sit here and i can't believe that it happened and yet I have to believe it. Dreams or nightmares. Madness or sanity. I don't know which is which.
0: Hello, Mr. Mark Canali. How are you doing?
1: I'm all right. How are you doing, Mr. Paul Waller? I'm
0: really excited to do this one. All about Let's Scare Jessica to Death. This is the first time I've taken one film and wanted to chat with one individual about it. Uh, yeah. It's a common podcast sort of thing a trope that people do but this film doesn't get enough love.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I mean uh, as we were just discussing beforehand as you were saying, I mean I think I think this is a film that kind of gets rediscovered every now and again because it it was made and kind of disappeared straight away. And then I think with a DVD release in the sort of late 90s I would have thought maybe early 2000s probably late 90s when I got it 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 seemed to get a lot of interest again and there was a website put together about it and all that sort of stuff and it it was just sort of just garnered a bit of attention then disappeared again and then it seems maybe sort of 20 odd years later Blu-ray comes out and suddenly everyone's talking about it again and um, you know a lot of the stuff that I've kind of gone through and looked at I have to give credit because there's a lot of people out there actually talking about it, writing sort of little essays about it and doing reviews, and not just little reviews, you know, proper in depth discussions about it. Because I think it's a film that kind of deserves that in a minute.
0: It lays down a lot of uh, what we would call tropes now that weren't tropes at that point, And they're done in unusual ways. So you could even argue, well, actually, that's not a trope at all. The way they've handled that is rather special and unique, which is why I think people do come back to it. Yeah, uh, this this would be ever so difficult to replicate, I think, unless you've got an alter director with uh, just a free mind and a free budget sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and the interesting thing is it's been remade. It's what at least attempted to be remade and it's it's sort of failed every time. Not 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 because it's like I'm not saying that, you know, there's been these sort of remake calls, let's get Jessica to death, but people have tried to do the same sort of thing and and you know, it I think it is of its time, and I think there's some important elements of it that make it of its time as well. And that's very importantly part of the film, as you say. It kind of is... It's the blood of the film. It's the blood that runs through the film is very much... It has to be, almost had to be, that sort of early 70s. It really
0: feels it. It really yeah. does. Is is that when you first discovered it, when you bought your DVD copy?
1: Basically, yeah. What The the, the story behind it is, I was just looking through lists of... As you do, when you're just you know got 10 minutes on your own you decide to get a list of horror films and just look through it and go scene scene got got need got need and i remember there was just two Well, i say horror films i don't even know if it was horror films it was just two films stood out mainly because of the title and you know you think let's scare jessica to death you just look at that title and just think what is that all about i mean it's you know there's some horror films that just the title just leaps out at you, and that was one of them. And the other one that stood out at the same time, and I got them both at the time, was uh, "and and soon the darkness," which was another sort of film that came out in nineteen seventy. And again, the title was just that. That you know, that's got to be worth watching just because <laughs> "and soon the darkness." And what this is? This is before the really bad band came out as well. so it's, it's had Nothing to do with that. <laughs> but, right. but, yeah. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah so that film that film would probably be worth a good chat over as well but i don't know if it kind of i don't know if i classify it as a horror it's probably more of a sort of psychological thriller type thing
0: everything counts as a horror come on
1: Yeah, it could do it could do it could do it is about some young girl that goes missing and then her friend has to sort of try and find her and yeah but it it, you know just these titles you know just these sort of titles that that kind of stood out and that was it That, that literally was it And I got it. And of course, you watch the film, and it's the title is so far away in many ways from what you're actually watching. It's like, who's scaring her to death? What is she going to get? Why would she be scared to death? Is she going to be scared to death? It sounds
0: like it would be a perfect 90s, I know what you did last summer type deal. That's how it sounded to me. And when I discovered Giallo, Uh, I thought, oh, this is just going to be another one of them Giallo, So it was just another reason for me not to get it, not not to invest my time in it. And what a mistake.
1: That's a good point, because you're right. A lot of the giallos, you know, you you look through them. What great titles. Twitch of the Death Nerve. I mean, good God, who came up with that one? (laughs) And, you know, there's, there's there's so many great, you know, Don't Torture a Duckling, things like that. A, a Lizard with, with a Woman's Skin. The titles are just some of the best ever. But, you know, sometimes the films don't quite, you know, 100% live up to that. I, I think, yeah, I think in this case, the title is great for, you know, catching your eye. But the film is just, transcends that completely just sort of you know that this is a completely different world you're walking into than that uh this director first thing that came up on the
0: screen that i was like what uh name john hancock i mean come on <laughs> that, what's that about I'm sure that's your name yeah
1: it's, it's his name. <laughs> seriously john d hancock that is his name and this is not some guy that sort of although the already is he actually was one of the writers and then used the uh pseudonym as a writer put his <laughs> name down as Ralph Rose as the writing credit, which <laughs> is quite funny. Yeah. exactly. But no, that is his name. That is that is not that is not a made-up name. Um I, I can only assume let's be honest John Hancock. There's probably a few of them out there. <laughs> have to come from somewhere. <laughs> exactly. But no, it is his first it was his first feature. He'd done a short film before this. He was um the, the, the really interesting sort of story before the film was created. This this is a guy who came from a theatrical background he worked uh, with a kind of sort of traveling theater troupe um you know these sort of rep theater people that travel around in the late 60s just putting on shakespeare plays weird sort of locations and stuff like that basically a bunch of hippies kind of just traveling around living the sort of actor weird creative kind of dream.
0: looking at this film
1: yeah, yeah, exactly, and and um, so he, he they ended up in San Francisco. Would you believe it? In the sort of like nineteen sixty nine, and I think it, what he sort of described it was: is he just he realised that the the kind of hippie dream was was coming to an end. He realised that this was all changing. America was changing. You know, Altamont and things like that. It, it was all sort of the, the dream was dying. Nineteen seventy. It was a new decades. Nixon was it was all that. all that stuff was going on and he basically just left them he just sort of like he couldn't handle that kind of lifestyle anymore he just thought no this is this is just this is this is disappearing you know we're all just going to end up decaying away so he went off and he thought sorry, I'm gonna to have to start earning some money now I'm gonna to have to make a living and all the rest of it so yeah he, he tried to, he started making films and this was the first what he did not what he did was he kind of used a lot of the people that he knew in theatre, uh, particularly in New York and Chicago, which are the big theatre towns rather than L.A. And, uh, yeah, he, he got them. Um, he got all the, sort of, the actors and a lot of the people that worked on the film came from that sort of scene, the sort of New York and Chicago theatre scene. And they were quite big names as well. Um, and I think that theme, that death of the hippie dream, which, let's be honest, is in a lot of American films in the early 70s. It's, it's yeah, probably one of the predominant themes in American cinema at that time. That was that was the big sort of theme in there. And I think you can sort of sense this sort of sense. Uh, there's a sort of Manson family vibe as well going on. With 100%, it. yeah. Uh, this sort of idea of moving out from the the city into the countryside, which is what a lot of hippies did at the end of the 60s. Instead of staying in San Francisco and sort of making the city a hippie dream, they ended up sort of shuffling out. And, of course, you've got the, the classic Manson thing of the Spahn Ranch. They moved there, you know, everyone, could, they, they moved into these sort of little weird places in the middle of nowhere. But, of course, the dream was to try and turn it into some sort of utopia. They did it over here with, like, Donovan and stuff like that, buying a Scottish island. And, you know, he, he wanted to sort of get all these people in here and just create some sort of creative idyll, and so sometimes it works in a way. He ended up leaving and going to America anyway. Um, but sometimes it turns into the Manson family, and you know they just it goes the other way. So you've got that really nice, interesting dynamic of the idea of trying to find something better in the countryside, which we uh, know never it never works in film. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was, but thank goodness it doesn't work in film. Like yeah. I agree, there's that the general. Or the, the the awe of that townsfolk has that same awe of that whole era uh towards the end of that idyllic a dream of, of hippiedom i definitely saw those parallels with the, the manson family i i felt it running through various characters that were sort of aloof uh for Wait. instance even when someone's trying to be nice when she goes to buy some eggs and that the how that all goes uh, excuse the pun foul <laughs> like, oh! Oh! Boom! Boom! But yeah, do you know what I mean? There's that yeah. that. Oh, actually, that was just such a simple transaction. Something that it should work, but just like that, Manson family, there's
1: something wrong. She, she walks into the the chicken coop, doesn't she? And it's it's like, wow, this is amazing. Look at all this, all these chickens. And then you know, literally, she's running out at the end, almost <laughs> sort of internally screaming. Whether it's because of the noise or the chaos or the idea of these chickens being trapped and cooped up. Do you like that, pun? And, uh, <laughs> and, and, yeah, so, uh, yes, the, the, there are elements of that. Obviously, the, the Manson thing as well, I think, um, when you look at Emily, who's the, the girl that so they find in the house, I mean, she is, if she isn't one of the Manson family when they when you start off, who is? I mean, you know, here's this you know sort of hippie, sort of slightly groupie kind of person who just squats in this house, plays a guitar, but has this amazingly sinister kind of like street. So, what great casting she was as well. She yeah, has incredible. that great look where she's kind of she's got that sort of prettiness, but at the same time, she just looks genuinely. Scary at the same time as well, without really trying, just just a look, just a general look. Yeah, uh, the, the 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 original script that was written by a guy called um, uh, Lee kalkine who changed his name on the credits as well to to Norman Jonas. You'll notice on the on the credits, which is actually his dad's name, because he was so embarrassed about the film and <laughs> thought <laughs> oh, it was going no. to be so, thought he was thought it was going to be so hated. And embarrassing, he didn't want to be associated with it, so he changed his name on the script. And wow. you know, he says yeah. it, that the original title was actually called It Drinks Hippie Blood, which is brilliant, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you think Let's Scare Jessica to Death's a bad title for a film in that sense, but it drinks hippie blood. And it was he got basically um paid by one of the producers before the director even came on board to um to just write a, a film about a monster that hunts hippies that, that sort of that they, they would move to this sort of little um, isolated location and a monster would come out the water and pick them off one by one kind of thing so he wrote a, a he was a writer that did a lot of sort of tv comedy in the 60s and stuff and he did this sort of satirical comedy kind of thing about the, 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 the end of hippie culture and stuff like that and, and that then john hancock came on and basically, like this, this this guy's a this guy's a serious director. He wanted to do serious films. So he took this comedy strip, this sort of comedy script and basically created all the stuff that, that you look in the film now that, that's just the darkness. He brought the darkness in. And he, he sort of he just wanted to sort of make a serious film. So he took a comedy strip script put lots of very serious bits over the top of that it really sort of worked on it to bring this atmosphere into it and i think that you do get a sense of uneasiness about it and there's there's actually two bits in the in the film um, i think that 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 are in there that were in the original sort of script and one of them is the seance bit that was going to be in the original film and just this I presume it was just going to be used as a silly seance type scene you know I don't know of oh and then somebody wanders off at the end of it and gets grabbed by something I don't know but that was from the original and the director didn't want to do it and it turns out they even said actually it turned out to be really good <laughs> and the other one was the the girl that just keeps appearing and then disappearing and this girl in a white dress um you know that, that appears at the graveyard near the beginning mm-hmm. And then the one that sort of points out the body in the orchard and stuff like this girl that sort of just keeps running about and then they sort of capture her and she's mute. And it, it does seem like the, 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 there's almost no point almost in the actual sort of character being in there. And that's essentially because she was in the original script and he was told to keep her in. And so, wow. <laughs> so you actually get this sort of thing, but they both work, both scenes work. I think because of the quality of the film made. Two things,
0: absolute bonkers that mm-hmm. that the girl in white, I thought was a figment of Jessica's imagination, and then mm-hmm. they capture her. Yeah, so it, right. Okay, that's that's that off the table. She's real. Mm-hmm. Second thing. They're all going into the property. They see the aforementioned um, uh, black-haired hippie girl,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and are not completely freaked out and ask her to get the hell out of there right away. As eventually they, they, they let her stay and then she can leave the next day. They oh no, no, you can live here. Now, yeah. if this was me or you or any other human being, yeah. seeing that, you, I would have tailed it. I would have ran right out there and called the police. <laughs> I would have yeah. driven to the next town along. I, I would have been out of there. But no matter how beautiful she is, no matter how single I would be, there is no way that this would transpire and yet for some reason it's totally believable within the context of these characters in this film yeah i have no idea how that works how are you like accepting of such a weird scenario
1: well i'm guessing there's there's two bits to that the the, the, the first bit is, is um bear in mind if if indeed she is a vampire we, we're doing the spoiler thing she's a vampire right so <laughs> <Whoa>! <laughs> so the point being if she's a vampire then a they can control people that's kind of the point they they have this sort of sense of control over people and and so you would expect that to be part of it but there's also the other part of vampire lore which as you said at the beginning kind of runs through it even though it's not really strictly sort of laid down as being oh here we go here's the vampire but one of the bits of vampire lore is you have to invite them in so in a way, you can kind of, of look at it as being this sense of them inviting her to stay is almost that sort of vampiric lore of the only way they can really become part of it is by being invited in by someone. And she's invited in twice. She's she's kind of, yes, there's a bit of the beginning where she is, and then she's going to leave the next day and they both sort of, they'll discuss it in the water and sort of like, say, should we just say she can stay for as long as she wants? Yeah, all right. It's the hear. hippie dream it is but there you go they are ex hippies they're, they're, they're kind of in a way that's what you'd expect them to be they're, they're gonna probably like think well you know she's kind of like us she plays guitar i play a double bass that's seven foot tall you know it's so. <laughs> like this is it
0: we could have the ultimate hippie band i did i didn't want to mention this but i'm gonna to have to like that music scene when they start playing a, a, a folk number and it it's really great i love it i love every yeah. moment in it <laughs>
1: <laughs> when he brings the
0: massive bass in and just it just goes. hold on, hold on. <sighs> oh. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I'm just gonna go and get my double bass. Exactly. Okay. Do you wanna know, no. know where that comes from? You wanna know where that comes from? No, no, no. In terms of like the double bass thing. No. Yeah, well, this double bass thing, right? This, this is um, this is another thing with the director. He basically, um, his parents when he was born an apple farm right and so he grew up in an apple farm and he said it was this creepy place he said it was just sort of the, everything about it was just really creepy it was a really old house in the middle of his farmland he said all the things about the spraying and stuff like that this all comes from his memories of like sort of growing up in this farm and this sort of idea of the chemicals and stuff like that mm. and the and these weird paintings hanging in the wall. That baby, what's going on with that baby? I don't know. Right. Um, and yeah, that his dad played the double bass, played this massive bass, and would lug this massive thing around, apparently, whenever they went anywhere. He'd stick this thing in the top of the station wagon and sort of drive it somewhere or whatever. And it, it this is a, actually where it comes from. And isn't it a brilliant analogy to a coffin? That's the whole point of him actually using it. Is that the, come the end of it? It's actually just a coffin, but it's just another way of getting a coffin into the house it's like they of course they do drive a hearse as well you know
0: i knew that scene was essential i knew it Mm. I've not seen this uh, actress that plays Jessica. I think it's Zora or Zora Lampert. Yeah. Um, but,
1: but I know she's in Exorcist Three for a brief she, moment or two. She, yeah, she plays these wife. And, um yeah, she's Zora Lampert. You won't really find her in that much. She basically did bit parts. But she was a very sort of respected theatre actress. Um she'd been nominated for two Tony Awards wow. on okay. Broad on Broadway. Um just through the 60s and stuff like that so she, she was she was a real deal i think at the time when she was cast in terms of popular culture she was best known i think she was she was in a tv advert at the time that was like a really popular tv advert so people would have known her from that but film and tv she was in splendor in the grass with um, warren Beatty in like the early 60s stuff like that she, she'd been in films but generally played girlfriends wives bit parts things like that Properly. You know acclaimed theatre actress as were all the others to be fair. You know, Barton Heyman who played the the husband again, a Broadway theatre actor. Uh Kevin O'Connor played Woody. Uh Dave Grohl look alike with the uh, impressive 1971 oh, yeah. moustache. But apparently he was like he was a top off Broadway actor. He was like he was a superstar off Broadway. All these sort of people, uh Mary Claire Costello who plays Emily, plays the, the the titular vampire. Um she she was a big um, theatre person in Chicago, and she knew Zora Lambert. Zora Lambert had actually put her name forward for the film because she'd sort of uh-huh. worked with like that. And I think there was an original girl that had been cast for it, but it got rid of it was got rid of for some reason or other. Uh, yeah, so they all kind of knew each other. That's what I'm saying. They all kind of came from this background, and in a way, what you're actually seeing is a really interesting thing because you're not seeing. Uh, Low-budget horror film that used people that were, you know, working in hamburger joints in LA, waiting for, the, you know, doing auditions for any old job, just trying to get the next job to pay the bills and stuff like that. Um, these were established actors that were working, and they don't look like Hollywood actors. Man. I mean, Sora Lampert does kind of have a bit of a look about her. And if you see her in some of the Hollywood films she did, she, she does look far more Hollywood, but you know, there's a sense you can feel one of the things about the performances and everything is they, they feel more naturalistic than they, they feel the, the less Hollywood, less cinematic and more naturalistic. They feel theatrical. You know, you feel a lot of the scenes, the seance scene and stuff like that. You feel there's a different sort of feel to it. And I think that is one of the big things that, that makes this film feel different to a lot of other horror films of the time. I agree.
0: There is a, a grain to the film, which you expect from a low-budget 70s film uh, made around that era. And with that, in my head, is, the, as you say, someone working in a, a restaurant uh, just picked up for a first film because they'll do it for nothing. Um, but you don't get that here. You, you, As I say, you are brought into the film from the moment they, they walk into that house. I believe it. Um, yeah. One thing I hate in films, and one thing I didn't think I was going to get with, is the inner monologue. I hate it, and I don't think it's warranted. Until this one. I think it's warranted. I like it. I feel like it's a character in itself. Yeah. How do you feel about inner monologues? Do you Are you the same as me? I
1: think sometimes they're added in. At the last minute, because directors or producers are a bit worried that stuff doesn't really have a a strong narrative or things like that, so they feel they have to explain things a lot more. Trust and us, you
0: know, you, know, trust you know. the
1: audience. Well, yeah, exactly. I think I think the the best example of maybe what you're talking about is Blade Runner. Where mm-hmm. they made the film, and then the producers basically you know, did the audience thing, and they got audience reactions back, and they were like, going, "No one understands what's going on. No one knows what what's actually going on." So they ended up having to put a VO on it, and then a monologue type thing, and 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 then every you know, and then everyone turns around and says, "Stop treating us like idiots. <laughs> Get rid of it." And it's, yes, it's perfect <laughs> again. You know, So, like, yes. Uh, interestingly, the 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 VO in this was a last minute edition it wasn't part of the original film. Yeah, exactly. It's me too. And it was basically because the director, when he was doing the editing, felt it didn't need something else. And, and if you think about it, without that, I think he probably was right in this case. I think if you lost that idea of it, that, that and I don't even know if I'd describe it just simply as in a monologue, because there's a lot more to it there's a lot of sound design to it. And this idea of the whispering and things like that, this is one of the beauties of the film is this queer question of, of, is it supernatural or is it just, well, insanity? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what did she say? She says madness or sanity, dreams or nightmares. You know, it's, it's, it, what is it? Is it, is it real? Is it, is it a spiritual thing or is it, you know, if you, if you sort of saw something, if you see a ghost's, Is it a ghost that's really there or is it just in your own head? That kind of thing. And I think, you know, with this film, that's really important. As you say, it's, I think it's an important character in the film because you are in Jessica's head for the whole film, if you think about it. Although you're seeing everything that's going on around there, you start and finish the film with her and her own, sitting in the boat. And there's a line of the just a a fantastic line where she sits the first line in the film and the last line in the film is I sit here and I can't believe that this happened. And when you hear it the first time around, it sounds like somebody saying I'm sitting here. I cannot believe this has happened. And then you hear exactly the same line at the end and you realize it's I sit here and I can't believe it's happened. You know, it's, it's said in the same way, but your interpretation of that line has changed purely because you've you've lived with her through that sort of 90 odd minutes or whatever it is and all these things you have to question you have to question whether you've seen them even the deaths even all of it when she floats away and all these people are left wandering off on the other side of the river are are they are they are any of them real is any of it real and you know she's just sitting there saying that i mean you you Kind of believe it is, but you know that she is lost in her own mind now. There's, you know, there's no way you should be able to prove it. It's, I, it I love that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it takes you on there. That inner monologue thing takes you on that journey with it. It's so important with her,
0: Yeah. Well, it's. I think that inner monologue carries us through the film to the actual real her. I. I think that's all it is it's like this is this is me this is who I am and we've all been in that situation where you're telling yourself not to do that thing that you always do that will muck things up uh and yet she is vocal oh,
1: she's on the edge of that isn't she that's Don't, isn't that a great part of the performance it's,
0: it's wonderful
1: yeah you know really her is. performance with it is so tense through the whole thing as well. That was one of the first things I really loved about it was just, she has this almost rictus grin through a lot of it because you almost feel that she's constantly trying to convince everyone around her that she's fine. I'm fine. You know, yes, I've just seen a dead body. It was definitely there. I'm telling you now, you know, this kind of idea. I'm not mad. I'm not nuts. I know I've just spent six months in an asylum or sanatorium as they describe it in the film. And it's like, you know, it's, it's this constant sort of like she's, she's, So the stress on her face of the idea of are they going to send me back? Are they going to send me back? Is just amazing, and it does that. That part of the performance is, I think, incredible, and the way that everyone else looks at her half the time as well, you can see they're sensing it as well. It's like it's fine. What's the bit at the beginning when he um, when the the girl runs up the stairs and she sees it, and he the the husband runs up behind her, and just the first thing he says to her is, "It's okay, I saw it too." That's it. Yeah, unbelievable.
0: (laughs) men
1: and she just spends the next the rest of the scene even though it's a terrifying sort of creepy scene for us as viewers she spends the next sort of five minutes with this smile on her face because someone else has seen it it's fine (laughs) it it
0: works as a wonderful uh tension 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 release tension 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 release whenever she's vindicated that release like when they they actually capture
1: the girl in white like that release like i told you i knew it I knew but, then, but then she she won't tell her about the body, though. That's the thing. I just thought, you tell them, tell them about the body. And it was like, oh, God, come on. I was going to say as well about the um the, the 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 influences for the film as well that we're sort of talking about with the inner monologue and things like that this idea of the, the paranoia and not being believed or not knowing if something's real or not two of the big influences uh, for the director when he was writing was turn of the screw um which was best made as in cinema as, as the innocence then if you've seen that one love it um and uh, you've got the haunting as well the, the classic Um, ghost film and those two films are the idea of this sort of neurotic female protagonist who's not quite sure if things are in her head or if she's really if people are going to believe her or not this this idea of so he he was definitely those two big sort of influences and i think there's other influences as well with it there's um there's rosemary's baby would be a classic one as well this idea of kind of the paranoia of nobody believing the the person is sort of really believing something and this you know I, I know this happened and everyone at Yale, right, whatever kind of thing you're just going nuts you're just going mad my favorite one would be nightmare at Twenty Thousand feet i don't know if you know that like zone episode i zone yes mm. and it's it's both in the original uh with um, william shatner or in the sort of 80s <laughs> yes remake with john lithgow mm. both of them are just amazing but I think that's a classic um, sort of comparison of, of this idea of the crazy person who's seeing things and everyone else just like, this person's completely nuts. And, you know, this, but of course it being true in the end sort of thing, that's when you find out the, the idea of gremlins and stuff. But I thought that's the, the really nice sort of influences that the writer had when he was sort of putting the script together. And it does sort of, again, give you an idea of where the film's coming from, this sort of idea of, is she mad? Is she not mad? I think what's different about this is what we've been saying as well is a lot of it because it's her internal monologue. It's not whether other people think she's mad. You're not the people looking at her like you'd be looking at John Lithgow and like going, you know, he's crazy, he's nuts. He's going to bring the plane down. This would be awful if you were on the plane. But you're in her head. So you're, you're in a different perspective. You're believing that it's all happening. it's really happening you have to sort of then take yourself out of it and go but no this would be nuts if it was real why would i sort of believe that
0: they never make light of mental illness in this film either they never it's never dealt with in a in a funny off-the-cuff manner like it so could easily slip into Um, and I, i really like that i appreciate that they're not treating us like idiots when we're watching the film
1: definitely yes um uh, the mental illness aspect of it the the, the beginning of the story it's it's there's, there's been some really as i was saying at the beginning of the chat there's been some really interesting analyses of this film and people talking about it in a modern context which is quite nice as well and um some of those interpretations are quite interesting because they're starting to bring a slightly feminist um, angle to it as a film as well and and not just seeing because not just seeing her as a victim and not just seeing any of the female characters as victims, but in many ways, you know, you're not getting that sort of standard thematic thing of the the male saving the female, the female being this sort of victim or this sort of of, Of damsel in distress kind of thing. And then the men sort of like sort of trying to sort of save them it really is about the woman on her own essentially she she's got no you know there's there's no help going to be coming there's nobody out there that can actually save her on that but in terms of the mental illness aspect some of the some of the analysis is quite nice it's a read one that was um, talking about it in terms of a sort of almost like gaslighting um, type theme where the idea of the husband and the friend and so on almost sort of convincing her that these things aren't real these things she's imagining things this idea that she's nuts that she's crazy is a very sort of is a nice sort of comparison with this gaslighting idea and this idea of sort of what what is a female perspective what is a woman's perspective in in a sort of threatening situation that a man would then be sort of in a situation sort of like no no you know you're you're imagining it you're crazy that i thought was a really interesting interpretation of it i think there's a scene in this film
0: that puts me on edge and she sort of jessica encourages it so it's when she thinks that maybe i don't know what's going on in her head but she thinks that maybe she can leave a fella with the the other woman and they're going to be all right they're not going to do anything or maybe they are going to do something either way she's going to put that to the test and leave and see how it plays out yes what what comes from that afterwards really does shape the men in the movie. Yeah, and and I find what a weird choice, what a weird decision for her to make at that particular time when she needs a rock, and she's like, no, I'm going to take everything into my own hands now.
1: Yeah, I find that. Yeah, really yeah, that's right. Because I guess that there is this sort of idea of the the controlling male kind of influence over it, the, the early parts of it, where he's going to take her away. He's, you know, he's. So she she goes into the sanatorium or sanitarium because of the death of her father. And it's it's described as being, you know, this sort of very serious relationship that she has with her dad. When he dies, she's she's lost. And so this idea of her husband then taking her and taking her away and putting her in a sort of remote environment. Is, is there an idea is there an element of sort of control here is there an element of this sort of controlling male sort of influence constantly in her life and this is the idea of her escaping it and this idea of her sort of breaking free of this of her of her father in that sense maybe i don't know this you know this, this obsessive male domination and then yeah, as you say there's that moment where she kind of releases him and of course you know there's no sense of him having any moral you know there's <laughs> no more outstanding sort of element to him here he goes downstairs and you know does the dirty it's like well you know that's <laughs> he, he's not even there's, there's no sense that he, any of the male characters haven't have any sense of moral protective feelings for anyone they, they all just seem fairly again that could be the hippie free love type thing who knows i don't know this sort of idea particularly that men had of You know, if you look at the Manson family, he tried to sell it as being free love, as being, you know, if he wanted men to join, and he said, "Here you go, look, all these girls are quite happy to just sleep with you, you know, come and join us," because he was desperate for sort of blokes to come over there and he could start running things with, you know, a bunch of early men sort of bikers and stuff like that but they just thought he was an idiot but yeah so so maybe that's sort of part of it i certainly think there is is that element that feminist element in it so i don't know whether the director intended it hugely but you know a lot of these things don't always come out obviously at the beginning
0: but that's the thing i don't know what hancock was actually trying to do but i know it's not there by an accident it's not accidentally put in there as a scene. There is a reason for it and i think it's open to interpretation because of her decision just to leave and let whatever play out yeah um, it's the one scene in the film that i'm i'm loose on i have no idea why that was yeah. but there are many reasons why it could be and it would ooze into the windows and into the doors and engulf the people It'd eat everything in its wake it was traveling down the coast from scotland whenever it would come to a town or a village it would call out
1: here comes the cake! Here comes the cake! BBC sent out. He wants her. He'll never believe me again. No one will. Did it happen? Did it happen? And she's got her ear to the Come, Jessica. Come with me, Jessica. Who's there? Go. Who's there? The voice comes back. It's not the cake. <laughs> <laughs> <Duncan's> mine <laughs> You think he loves you? But he's mine.
0: <laughs> Let's lighten things up. <laughs> Let's talk about—is this a vampire film? We've got the townsfolk. What is going on there? They enter. Enter hearse into the town. total Stephen King-type scenario where they're in a new town and everyone's weird looking at them. And like, I thought, oh, this is where this movie's going to go. And, of course, it doesn't go anywhere near there. But, like, what a setup! What a strange, bizarre way to start your film. And every time these characters, uh, anyone in, in the family that moves in, bumps into them, it's always negative. It, it, it sometimes... Gets almost violent.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you make of these town folk? Well, I mean, my first initial sort of reaction was they were the kind of Renfields, you know, from Dracula, this sort of crazed. I don't know, assistance or something like that, you might feel, but, you know, that it turns out, obviously, by the end of the film, you realise that they're just sort of controlled because she's fed from them in, in that way. Um, interesting, just an interesting aside, the, the, the use of, and there's no fangs or anything involved, it's a use of a knife. Yeah, so initially I thought it was like a Renfield-type crazy person, but they, they're just really controlled by them. I, I, I kind of look at it as being, again, this idea of city folk moving to the country. And again, you know, when we were discussing folk horror in one of the other sort of um, podcasts, we were talking about this idea of the the countryside being not not just strange, but having a kind of oppressive, evil, uh, unaccepting of outsiders, of you know people who don't understand our way of life type thing, you know, yeah. American Werewolf in London and things like that, you might think of at the beginning of stuff like that. Um, a couple of other examples, um, like Straw Dogs is a particularly sort of, an obvious example. Again, Um, 71 on the mail. Not not a favourite film of mine. I don't like Straw Dogs at all. I don't don't like it. I think this film, compared to something like Straw Dogs, which I think is a really twisted kind of toxic masculinity film as much as anything else.
0: I think it's really important. I think that film's really important, and you can't take away its influence or its importance but yeah i don't want to watch that again i'd watch let's get jessica to death again
1: sam peckinpah was an arsehole that's i think the 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 bottom line that you can learn from straw dogs really isn't it i mean it's like this not a particularly nice guy but um but you know in terms of theme I, i think a big one um obviously that's an american as well although working in a uk setting but an american director another american one that's similar deliverance is another similar. similar. Mm. This idea of the city folk coming in and the horror of, of the wilds, the horror of the countryside, you know, that that kind of element. Is that folk horror? Can America do folk horror if they don't have the same kind of history? That's a difficult question. I don't know if Jessica always felt like the closest they would, where they would come to is something like Jessica, purely because it has that feel of... Uh, there's something spiritually different about the countryside, about the farm, about the farmland, the, the, the buildings, the, not just the the sets, it was filmed on location completely, so no sets, but the locations, the... Just the, the farmhouse that they found, the building is just incredible looking. You know, it's almost like the Bates Motel or something like that. This is an incredible building. I think this film comes closest to it. I'm still would debate whether or not it's actually a folk horror or not. That's that's a difficult one.
0: The thing is, there is lots of crossovers um with all sorts of films, like you mentioned deliverance. Yeah, there are elements of deliverance that you would say a folk horror. And then you would say, Well, actually there are so many elements that are just a revenge film or there are elements where it's something else. Um, yeah. With American cinema, you do get a lot of these uh, the overlays, but one of the things about a folk horror for me, and I know it's a relatively recent term anyway, but it's just that Englishness. and Yeah.
1: yeah it, the and they do it. it, it yeah, exactly. Can you actually do it anywhere other than that? I think, you know, there, there, there has been sort of things like that. I think, cultures that have got a deep history that their culture has a very deep history as in like so you look at places like japan and stuff like that i think they can do films that that have that more of a feel to it like that on a barber and stuff has a feel of of something to do with the the soil and the the ground you know the fields and stuff like that where there's something living in it and it's infecting the people that 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 sort of live there can america do that that's a really interesting one because you're talking about a culture certainly the, the predominant culture of course is 250 years old and you know when they sort of try and do something that has more of a history to it like that. They're stuck with that sort of trope of the Native American kind of, you know, they, they, they get stuck in that sort of idea of the Native American revenge type thing again, of, of you know, this sort of the conflict, the, the cowboy and Indian conflict thing again, where, I don't know, what was the, now I'm going to struggle again for a title of a film. It wasn't Wolfen, was it? Where it's the, I think it is Wolfen where the lycanthropy, but it's a Native American shape changer. And it's, a you know, and he basically appears in sort of New York or something like that in a city and sort of of bodies start turning up and it's like this sort of lycanthrope, but it's a Native American one. So, you know, there's maybe films where they sort of struggle with that kind of idea of bringing the sort of this weird spiritual sort of thing that they kind of find strange in Native, you know. So I don't know if they can do it, because I think almost it's out of their sort of understanding to do it. The the witch is a good example, because the witch is set in America, without any doubt, has a folk horror feel to Mm, it. But then it is British pilgrims, kind of. It's the first generation. So they are British, essentially American, but they're, they're the first generation there. And it's made by, you know, it's made by a (laughs) British person. It's sort of like, you know, so, yeah, I don't know whether it literally is something they would really struggle to kind of put together. I think that's why I think this is one of the closest ones. But even then, I think you, you could argue it really isn't. It's just another interpretation. Of the ooh isn't the isn't the countryside full of weird uneducated people scary you know it's not that idea yeah. like oh yokels
0: but there is a another thing that would take it out of folk horror in my head and that was the score the music to it it's very moogie and it modern for that time
1: oh do you think so right I well, think I mean, so well the, the there was one really I, I love the soundtrack, absolutely love the soundtrack, and um it's interesting, it's actually two people accredited in the soundtrack. And so you've got one who's Orville Stober, which is a great name, Orville Stober, who he basically is the, the main um sort of composer, and he did all the, the sort of guitar and the piano stuff. The, the stuff that's, you know, the, the certainly more melodic stuff and the more classical sounding stuff, all the more folky sounding stuff, more naturalistic things. And that is really lovely stuff. And actually he did it. The director literally was sitting next to him as he was recording or at least wow. coming up with the, um, the soundtrack. Cool. And the director was, yeah, the director was literally telling him what to do a lot of the time. And he said it was one of the weirdest sort of you know, soundtracks he ever had to kind of like produce because it was literally under command almost. He was doing stuff that was being controlled almost at the time. But yeah, that's it is a fantastic soundtrack there. But then you've got the electronic music. As you say, this sort of, you'd say Moogie. I would say it's got that, it's certainly got that analog early 70s, late 60s, early 70s again maybe giallo-esque um, type Here we soundtrack go. well it does you know you think of the full cheese and stuff like that with these amazing soundtracks it's a guy called walter sear who did the music for it that's the, the electronic music as it's described in it and again a guy that i couldn't really find an awful lot about um, in terms of other stuff i did find one really interesting weird thing he did before a year before where he did the soundtrack again the electronic music and um, for a, a tv special on NBC, and it was called the cube and it was i think a live tv special type thing and it was about a guy who just woke up and found himself stuck in a cube This may sound sort of this from a film, you know, roughly the same name. But um, yeah, he just wakes up, finds himself in a cube. Can't remember where he was before. And basically he's visited by various people that he's not even sure if he knows the woman comes in and says that she's his wife and stuff like that or there's just people just walking and just accuse him of doing things and stuff like that and then at the end there's this whole sort of big thing about whether or not he even exists whether or not he's real or not reality or illusion this, did he ever exist in the first place? And all this sort of stuff. It's a really kind of bizarre... I, I haven't seen it. I literally just found out about it looking up this this um, composer. And it's quite interesting he did it. Another interesting thing is it was written and directed by Jim Henson. very <laughs> randomly. <laughs> I don't know if... Are you making this up, Mark? It. No, I'm not. 1969. And it was... Um, Jim Henson didn't just do The Muppet Show. This is before he actually did The Muppet Show. Just shows you he did some pretty crazy stuff but i find it interesting that it was actually a almost the same theme in some ways this idea of reality or illusion this are you you real is it not real i do wonder whether he actually came into it and and maybe that the director had seen that and heard the music and maybe wanted him to work on it because he did the electronic music and i think it also gives the soundtrack a very weird feel because the traditional music in the soundtrack is actually quite beautiful and really pretty in lots of ways it's i mean it's got an eeriness to it but it's got this beautiful melancholy to it it's 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 lovely and soft and the piano is almost recorded you can almost feel it's sort of recorded in a little room you know just like a single mic or something there's no sort of resonance it has that real feel it's a really strange sense to it and then you've got this electronic stuff which seems to sit completely separate from it particularly when stuff starts you know when shit starts getting weird you, you get this completely different style and a completely different composer doing these weird, almost experimental kind of analog, electronic sounding noises and squelches and bangs and. That's
0: it. Yeah, there, there's a repeated stab motifs that I love. <laughs> I love them so much that I was really excited looking for this soundtrack. I didn't know it was um I knew it was two people, but I thought it was your main guy. Who, uh, it was Orville. I thought he was the, the dude, and then you just had another guy helping him out here and there. I had no idea that like you had one component doing this and another doing that. That's interesting.
1: I believe they. I mean, I have. I can't say for certain that they had literally no connection, but I've found no evidence that they have, and I've read interviews with with Orville, and and he's never mentioned anything about the the other guy. But I do know that the other guy is is credited with the electronic music in the film. Yeah. You know, so you sit and say, "Well, obviously, that's why they they sound so disparate. Why they sound so disconnected?" Track. Yeah, I
0: want it. It's it's really rich uh, for what it brings for that for that period. It was like listening to it. I was getting frustrated because I could hear birds in the background that are obviously part of the film itself because it's set in the countryside. yes I want to hear this score for now. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: yeah, it's never been released, and I think it's something that. Because I think a lot of people have said it's a real shame because even at the time there were a lot of soundtracks released from films like this, even relatively low budget films, soundtracks were still released, and, and this one never has been. Well, so, not officially, anyway. I've
0: got a silly question mm-hmm. Would you recommend Let's Scare Jessica to Death?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think one of the main things about the film, if you're going to watch it in a modern setting, is I think it's important for you to have the right atmosphere. I think it's a film that if you, because I've, I've now I've watched it a few times, and I think if you kind of have a lights up, sitting with a sort of beer and some crisps and chatting away to someone next to you, or if you watch it in sort of bits, you know, stopping it halfway through and watching a bit the next night or something like that, the way that, you know, modern film sort of watching sometimes is, um, I th- don't think it would work anywhere near as well that if you actually lower the lights down, Make sure the volume in your TV is quite high just to start picking yeah. up on those, on those little, on those whispers and those little sound effects and the the, the VO, that, that sort of delicate VO with the different voices in it and stuff like that. I think if you do that, I think the film is just as effective as it ever has been. Um, and I do think thematically, I think it, yeah, I think it stands the test of time. As you've said before, it takes things very seriously. It, there's nothing about it that feels that it's throwaway. Um, I don't think it's maybe as scary as in terms of viscerally scary as maybe it was either intended or maybe was in 1971. But the real eeriness, the off kilterness, the that disassociation that you feel because of the main character, the performances—they all I think they all stand up quite quite happily.
0: I have to agree with you, Mark. Yeah, I do believe that this really stands up. I was stunned at how much I enjoyed it after all them years of putting it off because of the title. And even though the title was great, I just thought it was something that it wasn't.
1: Mm.
0: Um, It really excited me watching it, knowing that this is my first watch and I get to watch this again and then get some more stuff from it. Had a chat with you coming up. Love that sort of stuff. I love it. And it's so rare that you get to discover something that old that's still that relevant
1: yeah yeah definitely um yeah i think it works on re-watches as well i think that's it's a film that pays you back by re-watching it because i think the first time you watch it you're really caught up in the whole scenario of oh right okay real illusion you know, this is a big hook in the whole film. Is she really the vampire? It looks really obvious that she is, and then it's like you can't believe it's so obvious—the photograph, the whole sort of—you know, of course. Oh, right, okay, yeah. But then you do have that sort of element, sort of three quarters of the way through, of like, well, or or, or is she? Oh, yeah, okay, there she is. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, was right in first place. Okay. I think when you when you get that rewatch thing, you really can you really can soak it in a bit more. I think you really can soak in the performances more. I actually found it a much more weirdly comfortable watch the second time around. I found it a more sort of enjoyable watch, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I, I thought it was. I, I you know, It allows you to really sort of just, just sink into that melancholia, just sink into that sort of, you know, the feel of the film rather than getting caught up too much in the plot and all that sort
0: of thing. Brilliant. I love talking about that. But it's not where this podcast ends, I have got a final question and I love doing this sort of thing and I have had, haven't had an opportunity to do it yet uh, within a year in horror. So this is the first time. I'm going to give you my take, first of all. So basically, I want to know what film you would pair this with. So someone else uh, is going to be watching this but they want to make a night of it. What's the second film? So for me, I've chosen Jacob's Ladder. I ah, think,
1: right. okay. think
0: that would be a wonderful Mix of the similar sort of content done in completely different ways. Tim Robbins in that he's got confusion going on in his head. What's real? What isn't real?
1: Yes, trauma. Same sort of idea of trauma (sighs) breeding a sort of yeah. That's actually really. I I have to say I struggled with this as a as a sort of question because to me this although there's themes in this film that are probably in a lot of other films i struggled to sort of think of something obviously that to pair it with what what literally would you stick next to it the only one i could come up with apart from the ones that we spoke about before things like the innocence and the haunting and stuff like that, which would logically sort of fit with it and i think if you were going to sort of put them with it i think it would work quite well and definitely the nightmare at Twenty Thousand feet just because i think it's one of the best pieces of tv right right. all short film either version i think is is absolutely amazing is brilliant so i think that would be a great combination but the only other one i could think of and it, it wasn't it was one i'd actually read somewhere else people comparing it to as well and i thought i can kind of see i can kind of get the feeling maybe carnival of souls which Hello. maybe has the 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 same feel of that very low budget indie kind of feel but but really more about atmosphere and really more about the sort of the, the the kind of off kilter I wouldn't say weirdness. That's almost too easy to say weirdness. Just that's just that's this, this wrongness thing. Where whether it's even intentional or not, that sense of just, just wrongness when you you kind of certain shots or certain scenes. But but pairing it with that low-budget indie filmmaking type stuff. I, I'm not sure because Carnival Souls, I don't, I, I'm not convinced is actually a great film. It does get a lot of love, and I'm not entirely convinced that i love it as much as a lot of people do mm-hmm. but i think you could watch it as a in fact i did watch it as a double because i actually decided to sort of watch Fantastic. carnival Souls*. you know i did since okay you, i think you could use that as a double i think i think it would be a really interesting double bill to i think of that
0: that sits really well with me you've got all that twisted imagery in carnival of souls that even if the story dissipates with time you're still left with those images in your head. You'll never forget it once you've watched it. Although yeah. like, what you've been watching, I, I wasn't sure. I've only seen it once and I left really confused. And yet every now and again, I close my eyes and I can see it. So, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. That's brilliant. That, I would say that's probably even better than pairing it with Jacob's Ladder.
1: I don't know. I liked. It. I like where you came oh. from. I really want to watch Jacob's Ladder again. It's been a long time since I've seen that, and I'm thinking, no, actually, that's a really good. I hadn't even thought about that one, but now I think that's that's a really good comparison. Actually, yeah. Okay, right.
0: I think we we've done that. Bush done. Mark, thank Lovely. you so much. No
1: worries. Right. Enjoyed it. I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. I am here,
0: Jessica. Jessica, I am A massive let's say massive, let's not go huge, let's go massive thanks to Mark for digging deep on that one, I loved getting as much out of this as we did, I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, now as you're probably aware, the next year to be randomly picked out of the bag was 1996, so I will be back on the first of the month to deliver my verdict on that year, so far, bloody rubbish, but I am halfway through, so I live in hope. I do live in hope. Until then, feel free to ping us over a five-star rating on the Apple Podcasts. Uh, it does help the show no end by helping it get into those first few hits when people are randomly searching for things horror. And also, please keep all this correspondence coming. I'm loving it. As I say, unless you're a real twat, I will probably get back to you. And I'll probably get back to you if you're a real twat. Until next time, this is me out of here. This is A Year in Horror.
1: for you.